know where you were born? Uh, does any of you, do any of you go by a name other than your given name? Anybody? Your actual name has to go on the death certificate. You can put whatever you want in the newspaper and printed matter for the service. Uh, marital information. Do your kids know where you were married? Is there anyone here that went to join their husband at a military uh, where he was stationed and got married there? Do your kids know it? Um, sometimes there's an interesting story to share with your family about that. Uh, Social Security number. Funeral directors are responsible for reporting your death to Social Security. It's also required for the death certificate. Uh, the number of death certificates that your family will need to take care of your business once you're gone. Do you have more than one bank? Do you have life insurance with more than one policy? Do you have real estate? Do you have all this in one place so your family can get to it so they can uh, properly administer your estate? Uh, family, have all your family members' names written down where they live. Phone numbers, including cell phone numbers, are good to have. Did you serve in the military? Did you uh, participate in particular battles that you'd like to have listed in your obituary? Do you hold membership in an American Legion or a VFW? Do you want to have military rights? Do you have copies of your discharge papers? Uh, clubs and organizations you've been involved with, uh, 4-H, Masonic Lodge, Eastern Star. Um, do you want final rights by your fraternal organization? Casket bearers, keep in mind the age and the health of those you wish to serve. If you're a 90-year-old person, you probably don't want old people to carry your casket. Just common sense stuff. And it is perfectly okay for females to be casket bearers. Alternative services. Uh, cremation. When people say cremation, they kind of think, well, that means I can't have a funeral. Well, that's not, not necessarily the fact at all. You can have traditional service with traditional viewing, evening before visitation, and instead of going to the cemetery, you go to the crematory with the body. If you have specific wishes you wish to have carried out upon your death, you need to tell somebody. Uh, Pre President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had very specific instructions that he wished to have carried out upon his death. Unfortunately, he didn't tell anybody about them, and virtually none of the things he wanted happened when he passed away. If you don't feel comfortable talking about your final wishes, or more likely your family doesn't feel comfortable talking about your final wishes, write them down, just say, hey, I've written down what I want, let them know where it is, and just leave it at that. If they want to talk about it at that point, that gives you a good time to talk. Uh, visitation. Many, many people are going to visitation and service the same day. And I do understand the thinking behind it, but you're leaving out a whole segment of the community when that occurs because it's becoming much tougher to take off work through the, you know, through the day to participate in services. So, you know, you are the one most affected by the death, but death does affect the entire community. So uh, 
give people a chance to pay their respects. Uh, there are still parts of the country where it's common to have visitation from 9 in the morning till 9 at night, two days, and then have service the next day. So, you know, three or four hours isn't that much time to give up in your life to uh, give people an opportunity to pay their respects. Uh, and I do encourage people to go to visitation. Uh, your mere presence there means a lot. They're not expecting deep, a deep thought or eloquent words from you. Just be there for them. Um, as far as clothing for people that pass away, just uh, general guidelines. Collars and long sleeves are a good idea, especially for older folks that maybe have been in nursing homes. You know, a lot of IVs are in arms, and if you have long sleeves, it's, it's easier to cover with long sleeves than using makeup to cover up bruises. Underclothes, yes. Uh, shoes, it's whatever you're comfortable with. And bearing in jewelry, it's whatever you're comfortable with. Ladies, a current photo of how you want your hair done is a real good idea. Uh, many of the younger hairdressers don't feel comfortable going to the funeral home to do hair. So if you have a current photo of how you would like your hair done, it makes it a lot easier on the, the people that are willing to come to the funeral home to do hair. Have financial resources available to take care of your final expenses. Uh, life insurance policy, you know, just whatever it is, don't expect someone else to step up and pay for your funeral. I mean. There are funeral homes that are willing to help people with limited resources, but there are still costs that have to be covered. If at some point it appears you would need to go to a nursing home uh, for long-term care, it doesn't take very long to go through a whole lot of money. It is possible through the State Public Aid Act to protect resources to take care of your final expenses. And the rules are changing, just found out this week. So check with your public aid uh, caseworker. These are just some basic items. I have several of these in the back to hand out afterwards. I also have arrangement worksheets to hand out if you want to get your wishes down on paper. So hope this helps. There's a story told about a man who went away on a journey, and he left his brother in charge of his house. And after he'd been gone a few days, he called, he, uh, he asked his brother how things were going. He's all, they're all right. And uh, he asked him, well, how's my cat doing? And his brother said, oh, your cat, uh, your cat died. And the guy was just devastated. He loved his cat, you know. And like, you know, why, why would you just come out and tell me my cat died? He said, well, your cat died. He said, but I love the cat. He said, don't just tell me the cat died. You, you should have, you should have let me, you know, kind of receive that news like a little slower. You should have built up to that. Well, what do you mean? He says, well, for instance, you could have said, well, your cat is on the roof. Your cat's on the roof. We haven't been able to get the cat down. And, and uh, don't worry, we're going to do everything we can to get the cat back down. And then tomorrow when I called, you could have said, well, the cat's still up there. We tried putting some food out. It, it still won't come down. Uh, if, if nothing else, we'll call the fire department tomorrow. 
And when I called back the next day, you could have said, well, the fire truck showed up, they put the ladder up there, it scared the cat, he jumped off the roof, and I'm sorry, but the cat died. And that way it would have softened the blow a little bit for me. He says, well, I'm sorry I didn't know to do that. If, if it ever happens again, I will definitely do that. He says, okay, well, I appreciate that. He says, by the way, how, how's Grandma doing? He says, Grandma, she's on the roof. <laughs> we... Um, We don't always know how to, you know, just the look at that word up there on the screen, death, you know, it, it's very stark. We don't always deal with that word very well, and so we have come up with different ways of softening the blow when it comes to death, and we've come up with different euphemisms for dealing with death, and some of those euphemisms, you know, some of them reflect our faith, you know, the, the hope that we have, some of them are, are very hopeful, and they, well, he's entered his eternal rest. You know, that's a, that's a great euphemism, reflects our hope. Others of them are, well, honestly, some of them are a little too honest. I've heard some people refer to death as, well, they have, they have assumed room temperature. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little too honest for me. And others, you know, the reality is we use humor to cover over the things that make us uncomfortable, and some of our euphemisms for death reflect uh, that I, I found on the internet, I found a list of 101 euphemisms for death. I'm not going to read all of them for you, but they kind of reflect those different elements. So, for example, the angels came to carry her. You know, that's that's a beautiful thing. You know, the angels came to carry her. She is asleep, or she is awakened to eternal life. He became a root inspector. All right, that's, that's a little harsh. Berift of life, the big sleep. Bite the dust. Bought a one-way ticket. Bought the farm. Breathed his last. Called to Christ. Called to our Lord. Cashed in or cashed out. Ceased to be. Checked in at the horizontal Hilton or checked out. Climbed the stairway to heaven. Some of you are of the right age where you appreciate that one. Croaked. Never understood croaked. Crossed over. Defunct. Departed. Dirt nap. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Expired. Or excuse me. Entered the internal rest. Entered the pearly gates. Entered the sweet hereafter. Examines the radishes from below. Expired. That's one that I've always liked. Why, it kind of sounds like milk, doesn't it? Why does Grandpa smell funny? Well, he's expired. Faded away, gave up the ghost, got his reward, got her wings. His number is up. Immortal, immortally challenged. Is in a better place. Does it ever help when someone says they're in a better place? No. Don't, don't say that to people. It's, it's horrible. Is kaput. Don't say that either. Is no more. Joined his ancestors. Journey's end. Kicked the bucket. Kicked the can. Kicked the oxygen habit. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Laid down his life late. I never understood late either. Yeah, they're not late. They're not showing up. Yeah, they're, they're not going to be here. Uh, launched into eternity. Left. <laughs> Elvis has left the building. Met an untimely end, met his maker, met her maker. No longer counted in the census, 
and I am so sorry for this one, but a euphemism for death is not going to shop at Walmart anymore. You might be a redneck if you tell your, grand, your kids that grandma is dead by saying, well, she's not going to shop at Walmart anymore. Passed away, passed on, passed the point of no return, paid the piper, perished, playing a harp, pushing up daisies, relinquished his life resting in peace, shuffled off the mortal coil, which is Shakespeare, six feet under, sleeps with the fishes, slipped away, succumbed, surrendered, snuffed out, terminated, toes up, took a permanent vacation, turned to dust, walked the plank, that's for dead pirates, um, was called home, went the way of all flesh, went to be with the Lord, went to Davy Jones' locker, went to the happy hunting ground. And whether they reflect, whether they're humorous or whether they reflect our faith, we have many, many terms to avoid just simply using the word death. And this isn't something new to us. In fact, you read through the Bible, and the Bible has a lot of euphemisms for death, a lot of words that help us get a hold of that. We see terms in the Bible like that he has gone to be with his fathers or gathered to his fathers. We, we see terms like gone the way of all flesh and even terms like breathed his last. And those terms speak to the universality of death and it, and to the shared experience of death. And they point to our part in a larger community, that we are part of the family of God. And so when Paul writes his second letter to Timothy, and he probably wrote this letter about six months before his own death, Paul chose euphemisms that reflected his experience in life and reflected his service to Christ. And it's evident from what Paul writes that he did not see death as an end, but rather as the culmination of all of his experience with Christ. Everything that he had been doing, everything that he had suffered, everything that he had endured, Paul said it is time to move on and it's time to see what's next. And I think his perspective, in his perspective, we may gain something for our own perspective. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 today. Verses 1 through 8, if you're using the Bibles in the pew, and we encourage you to use those so we can all follow along together, it is page 996, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to begin with verses 1 through 5, because there's a real interesting turn that happens in this passage. Paul starts out in verse 1, I charge you, talking to Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I want you to notice what he's just told Timothy, his, his younger friend, Timothy. He's just told him, don't give up. Don't give up what you're doing. Don't give up what you were called to do. Don't give up what God has put you, put you on earth to do. Give yourself to God. And he warns him, times are changing, and the world is changing. And that can be very scary to us. But it doesn't mean that we give up. 
It doesn't mean that we change our message. It doesn't mean that we walk away or throw in the towel. We keep serving. And then he turns and addresses his own life. And he addresses his own approaching death. He says in verse 6, For I, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And you read those words and you realize this is not that fiery young apostle that we read about in the book of Acts. This isn't the young apostle that took on Rome, that took on Jerusalem, that took on Athens. This is an older man who realizes that his time is short. And the lessons that we learn from his life for our lives is that there comes a time when we have to realize we are no longer pouring ourselves into something, but instead we are being poured out. Paul recognized that he had hit this transition in his life. He was no longer pouring himself into his work. And there's a time when we do that. We pour ourselves into our jobs. We pour ourselves into our family. We pour ourselves into our church. And we give of ourselves. We continue to give. We continue to serve with the strength and abundance that God gives us. God gives us the endurance to keep doing more and more. But there comes a point when, like Paul, we realize we're no longer pouring ourselves in to the things we're doing. But rather, we are very aware that we are being poured out. There's a danger in not recognizing that time. And the danger is to ourselves. The danger can be to our family. It can be a danger to our church, even. Each one of us can only do so much. There comes a time when wisdom, when, when experience, and when our own drive to serve needs to bow to our trust in God and the realization that, well, my work is not actually mine. It belongs to God anyway. And, and if it's my time to to be poured out, God will bring someone else in to continue that and continue the work. And I have to trust him with that, that God has somebody lined up to take it from here. You know, we love Isaiah 40, verse 31. Some of you have told me that's your favorite verse in the Bible. Isaiah 40, verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord, he will renew their strength. We love that, don't we? They that wait upon the Lord, He will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and will not faint. And we love that Scripture. We go to that one over and over again. We go, yeah, God's going to renew my strength. God's going to keep me strong. I'm going to keep on serving through His strength. But if you flip over just six chapters, you know what else we find? (laughs) Isaiah 46, verse 4. God says, even... Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. Thanks a lot, God. (laughs) But he says, to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. The same God that in chapter 40 says, I will renew your strength, you will mount up with wings like eagles, you will run and not grow weary, you will walk and not faint. The same God... Six chapters later says, I will carry you. I will carry you to gray hairs. 
I will carry you. I will save you. What's different? What's the difference in those six chapters? <laughs> We're different. You're no spring chicken anymore, right? You know what? God is the same. Same love, same strength. Paul's life had turned a corner. He wasn't traveling like he had before. He wasn't out preaching. He wasn't out arguing in synagogues. And he felt the change. The change was undeniable. He said, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. But you notice something about that? He's still an offering. He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. He's still an offering. He's still giving himself to God. What's that going to look like for you, you know, when you eventually round that corner? You know? Well, if you haven't already. What's it going to look like when you graciously allow God to pour you out, to continue to use you? I really think there are two, two dangers that we see with that kind of transition. One is the danger of those who refuse to, to face that reality, who continue to fight, who continue to struggle, who like N.T. Wright, quoting Dylan Thomas, do not go gently into that dark night. Rage, rage against it. But the other danger is for those who quit too soon. And somehow we have to find peace in those two. Paul says, the time has come for my departure. Now Paul spent much of his life sailing, traveling by ship, and this was a term that he knew very well. It's another euphemism that he uses. The hour has come for my departure. There was a time when it was just right to let the ship go out of dock. And that time was based on the tide. And the ship would be tied to the dock. The anchor would be down. And when the tide was just right, you would raise the anchors. You would release the mooring ropes. And the tide itself would lift the ship up off of the dock or out of the dock and gently glide it out through the power of the tide alone into the, out there into the, into the sea. But you know what else? You can't rush that time. You can't postpone it. You can't put it off. You can't say, ah, you know, maybe the tide won't come today. It will come. You can't rush it either. You can't raise the anchor too soon. If you raise the anchor too soon, if you let those ropes go too soon, the ship can bounce back and forth. You can tear up the dock. You can tear up the ship. You can ruin everything. This past week, one of the major news stories we've been hearing about is a 29-year-old woman named Brittany Maynard. 29 years old, diagnosed with brain cancer. It's been discovered that it is inoperable. She is facing the reality of certain death. And she and her family have moved to Oregon, where physician-assisted suicide is legal. She has already been given a prescription, one pill, and her plan is to take that one pill on November 1st, surrounded by her family, listening to her favorite music, and that she will die from taking that pill. Media and people are calling her brave. They're talking about her courage. Folks, the reality is, that's not her decision. That's not her choice. And to say that she's courageous, what does that say for those that continue to, to fight, continue the, to, to struggle, continue to go through those treatments so that, so that they can have more time? What does that say about them? Are, are they not brave? Are they not They are some of the bravest people I know. That choice isn't hers. 
And my fear is that we have devalued life. We have taken the spark of God out of human life and said, this is my life, this is my choice. We've, we've taken away what God gave us. And we applaud those that take their lives into their own hands. My question is, is there nothing of God that we can learn through the process of death? Is there nothing of God that we can learn through the way that we care for those who are approaching the end of life? What could her husband, what could her child learn about compassion, about love, about until death do us part by caring for her in those difficult times? What does it teach her child? What is it going to teach her child to say when life becomes inconvenient, it's okay to get rid of that person? What does it say to our society when we say, when life becomes inconvenient, it's okay to just get rid of them, to put them out of their misery? Paul navigated that change with grace. And I think part of that is in the way he looks back at his life and at the work that he had done. And I hope, like Paul, that we're able to look back and see that we faithfully gave God our all. I read Paul's letters, and I think he must have been a sports fan. He, he must have been a sports fan, and maybe he was a lot like some of you. Maybe if Paul were here and there was a game, you know, there was going to be a game on early this afternoon, and I was just droning on and on and preaching and preaching, maybe Paul would be the one sitting there staring at his watch, wondering when's he going to shut up? Doesn't he, know, doesn't he know that there's a game on this afternoon? No, I don't. But Paul uses metaphors from, from sports, and many of the euphemisms he uses here are gathered from sports. In, in the very first letter we have, which is the, the Galatian letter, it's the earliest letter we have from Paul, he's still young, he's just starting out, and in, in that letter in Galatians, he tells us that he went to Jerusalem to meet with James, the brother of Jesus, to meet with the apostles, and to tell them about his ministry, and tell them about the message that he had for the Gentiles. And Paul says in Galatians, I went there to make sure, in order to make sure, I was not running or had not run in vain. So his very first letter, he says, I went to the apostles, I went to Jerusalem to make sure that I was not running in vain. So here, 2 Timothy, his very last letter, he returns to that same metaphor. He looks back over his life, looks back over his work, and, and you still see Paul as a race fan. He says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In fact, there's three metaphors he uses here, three different euphemisms he uses, and, and all of them are related to sports. He says, I have fought the good fight, and, and it's a wrestling term. In fact, the, the word there for the fight, it, it's where we get the word agonize. It's the Greek word for wrestling um, and I think the emphasis there, he says, I have fought the good fight. I think the emphasis there is on the good fight. You know, every now and then we hear about athletes who get involved in a, in a barroom brawl, you know. You hear those stories on the news and it comes out that this guy got into a barroom brawl or, or this, uh, this athlete got into a fight in a parking lot with somebody. And, and, you know, those kind of things are not good fights. That is not where they are called to fight. Fighting outside the ring is not what an athlete is supposed to do. Paul says... My fights, my struggles were legitimate. I fought where I was supposed to fight. I did what I was called to. He says, I finished 
the race. And the image is of the runner breaking the tape. Or at the very least, the runner completing the race. You know, that's, that's big. When you start something, you want to finish it. And there's a lot of runners who start marathons or start half marathons or start 5K races and never finish them. Last week, one of Trisha's friends on Facebook, she wrote this. She wrote, I have just finished a 5K race. I finished 618th. I don't like to brag, but I must tell you there were 630 runners. Which, in case you're too tired to do math, means that I beat 12 entire people. It's not about winning. It's about not giving up. It's about finishing what you started. It's about saying, I've committed to this and I'm going to see it to the end no matter how tough it is, no matter how painful it is, no matter how much it costs me, I'm going to see it all the way to the end. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to finish this. Now, I'm not a runner, so I don't know anything about that world, but I'll have you know that last week I finished an entire burrito all by myself. And I feel pretty good about that today. So I intend to try that one again one of these days too. Paul says, I didn't give up. I didn't give up before it was over. I didn't quit. I didn't decide that this was too hard. And then he says, I have kept the faith. And it would be really easy for us to hear that that's a statement of of faith or a, a religious expression, but it's not. What he's actually saying is, I played by the rules. I didn't break the rules. I didn't foul out. I didn't find a shortcut. You know, we've seen lately the disgrace of athletes who don't play by the rules, whether they're playing out on the field or whether they're playing in their homes with their family, with those close to them. We've seen athletes who lose control and their actions become abusive. We see athletes who have fouled out in life. We've seen athletes who don't pass those drug tests. We find out they've been using performance-enhancing drugs, and Paul looks back and he says, I did exactly what I was put here to do. I didn't foul out. I did what I was called to do, and I did it well. And because of that, he looks ahead. And just like him, I hope we're able to look ahead in anticipation of victory. Paul is very obviously at peace with his life. He's at peace with what he's done, at peace with what he's accomplished. And because of that, he's at peace with what is ahead of him. He says in verse 8, He said, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And again, this is Paul with one of his sports metaphors. He's not talking about a gold crown that the king would wear or some some royal official would wear. Rather, it's the crown of laurel leaves that would be given to the winner of the race And Paul realizes that Jesus is is cheering him on to victory, is waiting for him to finish his race so that he can give him the crown of the victor and give him his prize. He says it's a crown of righteousness. And that's, that's a wonderful promise to make because we're too aware. We are all too aware of our failings. We know we make mistakes. We know that we are unrighteous. We know our sin. We know that we fall short of God's standard for us. But if we concentrate on that, we're never going to find peace with being poured out. We're always going to want to do more. We're always going to want to give something else and and keep fighting and, and struggling. Paul knew it wasn't his righteousness. It was about 
Christ's righteousness. The song we're going to use a little later says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's not because of my righteousness. That's because of Christ's righteousness. And Paul didn't want us to think that this was something just reserved for him or something just reserved for apostles, only those that have done tremendous things. He says, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Some of your Bibles say to all who have longed for his appearing. I, I, love, I love both those translations, but I really like this idea for all who have loved his appearing. Years ago when we lived in Oakland, Trish was on the road a lot working and, and she'd be home maybe just every other week, maybe just one week out of the month, Trish would be home. And in the days before she would come home, I would do the laundry and I would do all the dishes and I would clean up. I would vacuum and I would have the beds made. I would have everything ready so that when she came home, you know, so she would think it was always like that. But, you know, so that when she came home, she would love to be home. And I did that not because I thought, well, if I don't do these things, she won't come home. Uh, I don't want it that way. I did those things because I loved her appearing. And I loved having her home, and I wanted to welcome her. And we don't, we don't give ourselves because, well, you know, we don't do all of these things and serve because, well, maybe, maybe Jesus will treat me a little better. <laughs> When he, when he finally comes back. We want everything to be right for him. We will love his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Does that love for him motivate you? Does it move you? Does it push you? Not to win his approval, not to win his love, but that your love for him means you can't wait to see him. You can't wait for him to come to you. You can't wait for that moment when he crowns you with his righteousness. When he tells you that the race is over. So whatever euphemism you use, whether you've checked in, whether you've checked out, whether you've finished the race, whether you've been poured out, the good news is Paul's hope can be your hope. You don't have to face the end of life with the frustration. Did I do enough? Have I given enough? You don't have to wonder whether or not there's a reward for you all you have to do is love Him. Run your race for Him. Give your life for Him. There's another one of these great sports analogies in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, the, there's the image there of the runner getting ready to run the race. He's getting ready to take off. And it, it's kind of like runners today, you know, they'll wear ankle weights, right? You don't wear those ankle weights when you're, when you're running, though, do you? You, you wear those before the race to kind of give you that feeling that nothing's going to hold you back when you're finally ready. So the, the runner is wearing the ankle weights. Maybe they've got a warm-up jacket. You don't wear that warm-up jacket during the race because it's restrictive. You take that off and you get ready to run. And, and, and you have that image in, in, or me, in Hebrews chapter 12. The runner takes off the weights, takes off everything that's tangling them up, and concentrates on what he sees way up ahead at the end of the finish line. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that cloud of witnesses is those that have gone on before us, those that we've sent on ahead, those who are surrounding us, who are cheering us on, who are rooting for us to finish our race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We come to the table, and we remember the cross. We remember that Jesus longed to be with us, that he loved to be with us, so much so that he went to the cross because he knew that his death would bring us to him. When I think about his love, when I think about his sacrifice, my life being poured out for him doesn't seem so bad. Verse 3 goes on. And he says in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I'm willing to bet that some of you today are tired. I'm willing to bet that you're tired and the reality is the race is far from over. The life has worn you out. Sin has worn you out. <coughs> Maybe part of the problem is it's not the good fight that you've been fighting. Maybe it's another fight. Maybe it's a fight you're not supposed to be fighting. And maybe it's time to give that fight over to Jesus and let him fight for you. There comes a point when we have to admit we're being poured out. There also comes a point when we have to admit we're broken vessels. We have to admit that, that our lives are, are broken before God. The promise for those broken vessels, the promise for those who are still pouring in and pouring out is that he meets us here. He gives us the strength. He gives us, he gives us his endurance. He gives us his support. He leads us to the gray hairs, he says. And he leads us to the table again to find hope, to find peace with him over and over again. 